So George, you actually didn't ask me the most important question about my travels, okay. which was, what was my plane movie? Oh, right, okay, so because you flew to... So I flew to New York so get to the, get the, the, the cruise back. Cruise back. Okay. So I had a seven-hour flight. Perfect. I watched two films. Okay. Would you like to know the two films that I watched? I, yeah, I would like to, because just before you say, yes. you know, when, when you choose a plane film, there are there is criteria. Yes, I, and, and, I, and we have sort of pecked at the discussion of plane films yeah, over this podcast. Show. What maketh a good plane film? You know, bad plane film. Yeah. Yes. But, but anyway. I, I, for me, it's, uh, you know, you want something that's not too... Not too critically acclaimed that you need to concentrate. No. Not so dumb that you can't, that it doesn't hold your attention. You need something. Not, so, not something so overly cinematic that you are you are losing out. Uh, you're always losing out, I think, on a smaller course, screen. But yeah. you're not so massively going to have yes. a different experience to someone who watches. Like, you know, I've, sure. I've seen people watch Tenet on a plane or on a phone. It's like, come on, you are not. You guys. Not to be, uh, even though I try not to be a snob about that kind of thing, I'm like, you are just not. I don't think this. that's being a snob. It's like, if you, it's like if you read the manual, it's like that these things aren't built to, you know, Christopher Nolan was said that that's not... Yes. Uh, whatever. Anyway, go. So my two films were... First one I watched was The King of Staten Island. Right, the yes. Oh, yeah, Pete Davidson yeah. biopic. Let yeah. uh, biopic more... It's like semi, heavily inspired by his life. He basically plays himself, directed by Judd Apatow. And I really liked it. Yeah. But I remember getting to, like... I remember I'd been watching the film for a while and I thought I'd just tap my screen yeah. to see. And it had been, I'd been watching for about an hour and 10 minutes and I wasn't even halfway I through know. and I audibly went, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> it's so long. I know. It's a really long John film. John Apatow films are always half an hour, 40 minutes too long. And look, I really enjoyed it. I think it's really good. I think yeah. Pete Davidson is really likable in it. Granted, he is literally playing himself. Sure. Um, but I, I really liked it. It does have that sort of second to third act lull where yeah. I'm like this is this is built to something and now it's kind of just taken a sidestep where it's just coasting yeah. for a bit yeah. and then it goes to coasting its on its own fumes a bit yeah. yes it kind of like the story takes a turn and you know when he's it's like it's when he starts getting involved in the firehouse it's yeah, all really nice yeah. but it's a long sequence of being integrated anyway I really enjoyed it and even the fact that even on a seven and a half hour flight, I was like, this film is taking <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. too long. Too long. <laughs> I was like, come on. And uh, then, wait, wait, I just sorry. want to say on that, I, you know, I, I liked King of Stan Island as well. I liked the way it kind of John Apatow has those films. They're kind of like funny, not not funny, sad, but they're kind of like, it's funny with a little bit something else. It's a little bit it. melancholy and you, too. But you also feel like you can relax into the the scene. And I do th I do get what Judd Apatow is trying to do. He's trying to like build a world. And he gives the characters in, loads yeah, of time. You get, feel like you really yeah, know them. Which I get. But I do think if that film had lost half an hour, it, I would I would have come out and said that was really good. Yeah. As it as it is, I come out and think that was fine. But yeah. It was nice enough, but a bit baggy. Yes. And I just, I watched it. Sorry. Not I don't know. I, <laughs> it's <laughs> the Jubilee weekend, by the way. Recording. Yeah. Um, I, what, I don't like watching films on the a given screen i'd like to like prep it on my ipad or a laptop oh just because yeah. you know when you're watching something and then like, like and, it, and then all of a sudden you finish the english you're like write it down and then it's like uh hola esta bien, and i'm like oh my god how many languages are you doing but yeah I, I i didn't do it on their screen which yeah, is usually yeah. not Look, as good. most people bring their own screen yeah, yeah. And, and you know what when you when you fly now you've got to do everything you've got to have everything gotta, you never you, know you've got to bring everything you'll bring your own screens i need to have audio podcast when i'm standing and, and waiting you know yeah. like audio support i need yeah. to have visual support it's terrible you gotta get your downloads sorted oh you've got to get your downloads anyway what was your second film uh the second film which is just fine was the lost city with sandra bullock and channing tatum and brad pitt and that's the movie. It's uh, yep. I've literally, literally nice. You know what? Daniel it's Radcliffe? not. 
Yes, Daniel Radcliffe. He's having good fun in it. It's not amazing. It's not bad. It passed the time that it gave me. Sounds like a perfect plane movie. And it's, you know what? Like, I, I wouldn't have watched it off, off a plane. Yeah. But on a plane, I was like, yeah. Yeah. Hour 40 minutes. Film. Oh, yeah. I think so. That hour 40 minutes. Boom. Comedy. Brad Pitt's really good fun. He's having a lot of fun. Okay. It's clearly like we wrote four comedy sequences and we will just build to those sequences. Okay. And then we're, and then we're done. Do I recommend it? Not really. Mm-hmm. Did I did I enjoy myself? Kind of. That's a plain movie. It's a plain movie. That's, that's a plain movie. It's a plain movie. Very it's good. not an amazing plain movie, but like I okay. lost an hour and 40 minutes and I'm, that's what I want. I'm flying to uh, New York in September. Oh, so great. you can give me some, you know, we'll have to do a little roster of what things yes. George can take on holiday with him. And also it was, it was an 11 a.m. flight. So I wasn't really going to sleep on this plane. No. So I knew I needed to have mm. some content. Whereas if sure. it's an overnight, I can, you know, maybe only one film. Uh, modern life, eh? There you go. <laughs> that will thank you for listening to another episode of Plane Movies with James and George. <laughs> Wait till we get to your next plane where we can talk about what we watched then. Thank you for listening. Yeah. So, George, should we go through some of the correspondence that we've had this week? Let's do it. If you want to email into the show, you can do by emailing hello at pulpkitchenpodcast.com. First email is from, and I'm sorry if I'm saying this wrong, this is from Tarby. Hi guys, I saw a clip on TikTok last week and I've been binging your episodes ever since. I really enjoy the topics and tangents, not to mention the discussions and delicious foods you bring to the table. Number one, what are the movies that you were into or were giving the benefit of the doubt to, but one moment maybe a cameo weird character decision that made you lose interest immediately? What movie moment, what movie moment made you go, nope, I'm out? Anything off the top of your head? This has happened, I say this has happened a lot. Films sometimes you go, oh, I've got one that comes to mind. Go for it. It's not a great film. It's a film called Remember Me, starring Robert Pattinson and Pierce yeah, Brosnan. Have wow. you seen this film? No, but I know So do you know what happens in the end? No. So it's a sort of like angsty relationship drama, very like F you dad, this yeah. and that. And then he goes up to his dad's office at the very end of the film to have this final confrontation with him and how like insufficient he has in a father. And then Robert Pattinson looks out the window. The camera zooms out to reveal that he's at the top of the World Trade Center. And then out of nowhere, the film reveals to you that it's actually September 9th, 2001, and 9-11 happens. And that's the end of the film. And you're just like, what? And taking, taking- What? Yeah. I promise you, it's like, this is like a famous what the hell moment of the film. Taking the sensitivity of 9-11 out of this, if, you know, maybe you're American or just in general, you're yeah, sensitive yeah, to that. Yeah. What a random and weird way to just introduce that into your film. Cheap. Cheap. Well, yeah. And, and like, just to use that it's as a something. plot device to be so like, cynical. and yeah. they died and it was 9-11. Yeah. It's so strange. I'll show you, I'll September send the clip 9th, to you. Though, you said. Sorry, September 11th. I meant September 11th, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, why did you say September 11th? I was not like, oh, sorry. He, he went up there for I two meant, days, didn't he? <laughs> no, I meant September 11th. God. And you're just like, oh. And then he dies, and the people remember. It. Yeah, that's the one that's. Uh, I was actually enjoying the film. Was I'll, with I'll it, have to think went, about no. that, and maybe I'll come back to the later episode. I'm really sorry. I, I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. That's fine. Second question, what Hollywood movie tropes irritate you the most and why does it irk you? For example, white saviorism, mm-hmm. enemies to lovers, love can fix toxic men, etc. Nice. I look forward to your next episode. Sending my appreciation from South Africa. Tubby, oh, hey, thank South you. Africa, cool. Um, great question. Again, I mean, you could spend all day talking about the tropes. Yes. I think the one that comes to mind There's so is many. Um, pointless narration. Yeah, I really pointless voiceover. Yeah. I don't like it when a film uses voiceover and starts it and then abandons and, and it. Abandons it, and it's okay if you have voice. Uh, no, it's 
is if you use voiceover in a film, you've got to have a really specific reason justification for doing it. Okay. Yes. Maybe it's part of the genre. So if it's a hard boiled detective thing, that, that's, that's fine. But uh, one that comes to mind is train wreck, the Judd Apatow film, right? Yeah. That begins with her doing voiceover. Yeah. And then once she's just told you all the bits that she needs to tell you, the voice goes away and never comes you back. And they, they never talk about intro. it. It's like, that is so lazy. That yeah. is so lazy. Or what, what some films will do, the sneaky trick is they'll do the intro to get you in, get do the groundwork, and then they'll cut to the character saying this to someone like over coffee. And they'll be like, yeah, you see, all along they were just saying that to someone they were having coffee with. I was yeah. like, really, you should be able to tell me this cinematically, visually, or just in a different way. If you just read a script to me, like a pricey, no, thank you. So that, that's something that puts me off. I agree. Next email. Hi guys, big fan of the show, and I thought I'd message in to let you know how much fun I'm having listening to your episodes. Oh, I'm currently you. working my th- working my way through your entire podography. I'd love to hear your opinions. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I'd love to hear your opinions on Bill Hader's Barry and Jonathan Nolan's Westworld. Also, what are your guilty pleasure films? Keep up the good Whoa. work. And that is from Bailey. So okay, wait, Bailey, great. We guilty pleasures. Have we talked about that before? We I, have I talked think... about it, and I think the concept of it. It's quite a big, uh, broad term. Do we even buy into the term of guilty pleasures? Is there something that is... Why should you feel guilty for liking a film? Is that I, I guess it's thing? like films we, we know aren't great, but we kind of love them anyway. Uh, but, so I might, but maybe we'll do a whole episode on it. But have you seen Bill Hader's Barry? I haven't seen Bill Hader's Barry, but I really like Bill Hader as a comedic actor and performer. Oh, yeah. Not even comedic, sorry. He's an actor performer in his own right. He's great on a talk show. He's he great. always just has a good I, anecdote. He always has a good go. anecdote. I always like his performances. He's always very funny. Yeah. Um, uh, the, weirdly, the one that came to my mind was when they did the roast of James Franco. Did you ever see that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He plays like the president of Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, And he, yeah. And he roasts himself, but he's not there. So oh. good. Um, Bill Hader is great. Jonathan Nolan's Westworld, I assume you mean the, the TV show, right? Yes. We have talked about that briefly. Uh, briefly. I will say what I said before, which is that I think that Westworld represents peak TV. When the golden mm. age of TV hit peak TV and you get this huge, in my opinion, bloated, um, overstuffed uh, series full of loads of famous people, loads of talent, not quite knowing what to do with it. I think the pilot was made in 2014, didn't get made into a series until 2016. I haven't seen that much of it. I w- tried to watch the first series. I really didn't like it. It had really, really bad dialogue. There was a, do you remember, you, you tried to watch it. Remember there was that British character oh. in it. Do you remember who was like, hello, I'm what from What are England. we doing here? Yeah. What the uh, fuck? I hated it. it was, and there was, yeah. you know the dialogue was bad when there was just random swearing in just like placeholder F words. Over yeah. and, over. and I, felt like, I felt like such a prude, but I was like, this is so boring. Like, I also felt like it was also peak Game of Thrones era where we had this, like, we need to have lots of sex and nudity and tits. And I do, I am a person who is a little bit like, I get it when I watch TV shows. I'm a person who's not uh, (laughs) open to... uh, Like, like, I I get it, characters have sex. But a a lot of the times I'm like, I get it. They had sex. I do not need... Titillation, yeah. Four minutes of this, yeah. I understand. Like, yeah. unless there is a specific, unless it's like normal people where the, the specific the story, intimacy yeah. that they share is so relevant to the character's yeah. story, then I think it's really important to film yeah. the sex. But often I'm like, come on, are we all just sitting here on a Sunday night just yeah. going, ooh, I'm so yeah, repressed, I, I need this outlet oh. to have sex. That's what I feel. And then Jonathan Nolan, I would say, look, I agree with you on Westworld. I think the, I, I, I watched the first series and never continued because I didn't hear enough good things to go and continue. But, you know, that he's written some of my favourite films in The Prestige, Memento, yeah. I think he wrote The Dark Knight, but I'm not sure. But, like, you know, he's done Christopher Nolan's yeah. uh, film. So I think as a writer, I have faith that he can do something really cool and I'll definitely pay attention to what he does next. But as far as Westworld goes, I... I 
I concur with uh, what you said. Nice. This next one. Hey guys, Charlie here. Loving the podcast. And I often find myself saying out loud, that's what I think when <laughs> listening to you in the gym. Nice. Question. Brett Easton Ellis has often talked about cinema nowadays being judged on its politics over its aesthetics, yeah. i.e. the social importance of a story over the direction, yes. editing, script, etc. Yes. Do you agree with this opinion? From my, from my viewpoint, I agree with Brett for most of the part. Take, for example, Netflix's new teen series, Heartstopper, which has received critical acclaim and two further series greenlit. I'm gay myself, and I have to say Heartstopper truly is the nadir of gay TV or film. It's bland, edgeless, saccharine, and directed with toe-curling sincerity. However, refer... Sorry. However, it's being championed as progressive and important. All the acclaim and reviews refer to its politics and therefore no mention of its script, direction, cinematography, sound, music, etc. Of course, representation matters, nice. but doesn't art also matter? Keep up the good work. Look forward to listening each week. Big question, Charlie. Ooh, Thank you for the question. Big, big question indeed. And you know, we had kind of touched upon this, I think, in a previous week. I kind of sort of said, remember when I went on that tangent, I sort of said a bit about, I use Green Book as a weird example. Yes. I know exactly the Brett Easton Ellis comment he's, he's talking about there. Um, I haven't seen Heartstopper, um, no. so interesting example, but talking about it in more general terms, I think he is, Brett, and that email, is kind oh. of right in that there there is definitely a trend where things are kind of celebrated, as I talked before about their ideas and their politics over their the function as a, 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 as a film. So I spoke about that thing before about, mm. you know, Green Book, I feel weird to talk about Green Book again because I really don't have a lot to say about that film, but, yeah. but it's more just like that was a film that was either uh, championed or um, shot down based on its politics. But 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 if you actually look to that film as a functional movie, it does work, which is why there are loads of people who go, oh, I saw Green Book, I really liked it. It's like, yeah, yeah because it's it's a functional film. Um, uh, I, in terms, but, but it, there, it, it is a debate because obviously you want to champion representation where it, it where it's possible and you don't want to like... Um, stamp on um, burgeoning talent and burgeoning embers that are kind of coming through. I don't know. What do you What do you think? I think it's difficult because art, film. I think it's impossible to not be political. R literally, with I think it's really hard. I think Top Gun Maverick is like one of nothing, the only well, films nothing exists in a vacuum. Nothing you know, exists yeah. in a vacuum. Every yeah. line of dialogue comes from a place, yes, from sure. from a perspective from that ideology, is inherently yeah. biased from where it came from. And I think it's impossible for us to just sit here and be like, "Well, nothing should be political." When actually, like some of the great art pieces of all time sure. have been informed by their politics. I also think we do a disservice by just championing something for what it's now representing instead of valuing it for the quality mm. that it is. But at the same time, we live in a world where we do have to have quotas for people on TV. We do have to, mm. I'm sure in all the big streaming services, they have to go, okay, we need X percent mm. of this to be talking about LGBTQ, mm. gender issues, people from mm. fame backgrounds. And I don't, I don't currently think there is a better way to get around that than what we have now. Mm. I but do it, sorry I do think cuz I come from a TV background and I've been in editorial meetings where we talk about having TV shows where there's too many old white men on it mm. and the only way you get away with that is we go let's not do that this week let us actively try and have someone on the sofa who isn't that and it's really awkward because now you've got everyone trying to decide what should be best to represent and we sh should we be championing them because of this or should we actually have them on for the, the actual abilities oh, and talents yeah, that they have and you end up having situations where you over-represent one person because that's the only person you have who represents that mm. so I don't think I have the answer for what you no, should do not, it's, no. a, it's a it's a it's a debate for probably much smarter people who are more in tune to this kind of thing. I think maybe the answer, not so, not the answer, there is no, yeah, there is no <laughs> but, but I mean like one approach I think is maybe more just on a personal level. If one is consuming content, I think one has to think about like, 
And when, and when people see reviews of it as well, just think to yourself, just like, okay, but what do I actually think of like, how was my experience of that film? Or how was yes. my experience of that show? Despite its politics, whether you agree yes. with its politics or whether you disagree with it, what yep. was your experience? Because, you know, you and I, everyone has gone to see things which mm-hmm. against their better judgment have either really liked or they've gone to see something that they thought they would be really behind and haven't enjoyed. Yeah. Um, and I find nothing more soul destroying than when you like see something that you're really behind on a political ideological way and it's not a really great film. Yes. I recently saw an article where um, there was uh, lots of discussions happening at Netflix where employees of Netflix were not happy about some of the people they were featuring and some of the TV shows, stand-up specials that were featuring on Netflix yeah. because they didn't agree with the views sure. of those things like being Dave positioned. Anyone, yeah. yeah, like Louis C.K. or even yeah. just like specific TV shows. And I think Netflix sent out this email saying, if you have a problem with... Uh, di- like repre- uh, like putting out different uh, shows that have different ideas to what you have, you're probably not, you shouldn't be working at Netflix, which is a really interesting hard take to have where you're saying like, just because you work here, it doesn't mean that you get mm. to decide what yeah. people do and don't enjoy. It's a very tricky situation, but it's interesting that they have to sort of draw a line of whether or not we put stuff out and it's there to be enjoyed by anyone or should we pre-decide what is approved for people based on its politics. It's very messy. And we definitely don't have the answers. As, I don't have an answer. Uh, especially, but but that, that's a really uh, good email. That really good email. Surface, so thank you. Hey, lads. Loving the show. Been listening for a while. And, I th- and I'm thoroughly invested now. Yay. I like that. I like that you're invested. invested. I had nice. some immediate thoughts for my favorite scenes. One that I return to on YouTube every now and again is from 10 Things I Hate About You. And it's the scene where Heath Ledger oh, dances yeah. across the stadium seat singing, Can't Take My Eyes Off of You. Yeah. When I first watched this film, this scene filled me with such intense joy in butterflies. And it's one of my all-time favorite romantic scenes in any film. I could list about 100 others, but I shan't. Thanks, Isaac. Isaac, I think you're right. And I think it's very easy when we talk about the best scenes to go to the oscar nominated. Yeah, and the darling right. indie film and I actually think the, the, the rom-coms and the chick flicks for lack of a better term have some really great cathartic moments in them yeah. that are often not talked about and I agree that is one of them who's that from sorry that's from Isaac right, thank you Isaac I, uh, I, I agree I, I, that's a lovely film great scene although that scene I always think about now because there's been so many things written about that that particular scene being mm. like people expect you know massive declamatory oh gestures for when people do proposals like, this is why we have bad, yeah. bad rom-coms yeah. now but um what that actually reminds me of is uh, 500 Days of Summer, which uh, is a thing you could talk about for a while because that is a film that has not aged well. Yeah. Um, uh, a film, you know, as a 17-year-old, oh, yeah, I enjoy it, but yeah. when I look at it in the cold light of day to day, I go, Jesus Christ. It's a bit much. Smashing plates. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, I know. Just, just really off kilter now yeah um but that's a conversation for another time maybe someone's gonna write in now and be like i don't understand what you mean about 500 days of summer uh, there's lots of stuff that's been written about it better than we can say right now however there were individual scenes in that as a rom-com as you mm. said expectation reality scene that in is wonderful because that became like a language that was used in memes you know yeah. ex- expectation and I, that, that is a really good scene he goes to the party thinks you know he's so excited and to see it. we've all done that yeah exactly you've you all play done a, that play the movie like it's a really smart sequence you so, imagine the party in your head before you go that's the thing <laughs> Uh, it's uh when we're kind of dismissing a film you can't you've got to kind of salvage the good bits also the bit where he dances to Hall the Notes. Yeah. You know, he's like, well, and he w- winks in the car window and it's Han Solo. Yeah. And yeah. then the marching band comes along. Just everyone on the street behind Just, just kind of like, that was fun. I, I remember really enjoying that when I was younger, like mm. standouts. I was like, that's fun and inventive. Yeah. Anyway. 
Hi guys. Firstly, I'm a big fan. Please keep whipping out the actors' impressions. They're hilarious and weirdly accurate. When you mention potentially oh, wow. talking double Very bills good. for films, I happen to have just watched Lord of War and Blood Diamond in close succession, and I think they'd be a great fit. We are going to do double bills soon, so stay that. tuned. Uh, he's going to talk just briefly about the original Top Gun, which we did a deep dive in a couple of weeks ago. Just listen to the episode on Top Gun, etc. And I would say I am part of the niche that the producers unintentionally directed it to. <laughs> to this day, it's my favorite comfort film to go back to. I first watched it around age eight, and with my youthful ignorance i missed the cheesiness and the americanness but i fully remember being captured by the dogfighting scenes learning the catchphrases for each scene and definitely bawled my eyes out to the death of goose <laughs> my father is ex-ref so this probably sure. built into my idealistic childish view of what he'd done probably less oily volleyball and the military in general <laughs> if it was an advert intentionally it worked on me as a 20 year old now i can appreciate its flaws and see the homoeroticism but unashamedly i regularly watch it for the entertainment value i'm hugely excited for the new film i just hope it isn't too mission impossible slash american high school drama a quick question. Have uh, either, uh, sorry, yeah. Quickly um, answer that. I mean, yeah, I think... Uh, interesting. Uh, I mean, there's not American High School drama. It's a bit Mission Impossible. It's a bit, yeah, it is a bit Mission Impossible, but it's great. And if you love Top Gun, oh, boy. you are going to love have a great Maverick. Time. It Maybe, is for hey, everyone. Who's that from, sorry? That is from Matt. Matt, go see Top Gun Maverick and then write in and let us know what you thought about it, okay? Yeah, I'd, I'd love, be really please interested get to back know to your us opinion. because I actually think... Because when, when we spoke about Top Gun, we weren't critical of it, but we, neither of us loved it. But we had a lot of people of a certain generation, of a certain type, really have a go at us for not getting it, yeah. even though we talked about it in context of us like reviewing yes. it out of time. Um, but I'm interested, because that's an interesting take, because I didn't grow up with it, but you did. Yes. Let me know what you think. Thank you for taking the time to read this, and thanks for the podcast. It has definitely made me think about what I'm watching more, and that is from Matt. That is wonderful. Thank you, Matt. That's, that's a great thing. Okay. Hi, guys. Love the podcast. You said something about Brad Pitt in your last episode that got me thinking that his role in Snatch was more out there than he would go again and comparing it to Tom Cruise in Magnolia. I think that does Brad Pitt a disservice. Although he's okay. best known for his classic leading man Roy, roles, Troy, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Ocean's Eleven, mm -hmm. Legends of the Fall, Ad yes. Astra, etc., his career has always been dotted with a real variety of roles. A couple that jump to mind are his 95 role in Terry, Terry Gilliam's 12 Monkeys, right. the Coen Brothers' Burn After Reading, I yeah. agree, and of course, the very colourful Lieutenant Aldo Rain yeah. in Inglourious Bastards. Yeah. In the context of films like these, Snatch doesn't seem like much of an outlier. Pitt has talked candidly about the idea that he's reached the end of his shelf life as a romantic lead, so I wouldn't be surprised if he plays into the character side of things more in the years to come. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood played on that theme a lot, even if his role wasn't that wasn't as nearly out there as Snatch 12 Monkeys. I found his playfulness in that film an encouraging indicator of his willingness to continue to play towards that end of the spectrum. Curious to hear your thoughts. Cheers, Jasper. Jasper, good point. I think we probably spoke a bit, just a bit quickly about Brad Pitt last time, so we, probably, yeah. we didn't mean to misspeak, probably didn't give it enough time. I see it was your part point. Of the game, wasn't I it? think actually, really, what we were trying to say is when we said that Brad Pitt performance is out there, it's the Brad Pitt performance with a really strong accent. accent. That's not that's not an American. So, like, if you look all at the other Brad Pitt roles, they're on like a sliding scale of American man. You've either got the the, the chiseled like leading man kind of stuff, Mr. Troy. Mrs. Smith and Troy, that kind of stuff, or then you slide under the slightly more um, wa weird, wacky stranger. 12 Monkeys, um, Burn After Reading, Fight Club. Yeah, I was going to say, even Fight Club. Uh, and um, et cetera. Bastards. And Glorious Bastards. And even, you know, I mean, Cliff in, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is fleshed out, but even he's not going on, on, a, on a different scale. I think what we were trying to say with, with Snatch is that he's, you know, you watch that film, you're like, oh, that's Brad Pitt. He's, yeah. He's kind of unrecognizable. He's dirtied up. He's scrubbed. Especially going back to watch it. Yeah, and he's, he's got... Because it's also so untypical to have 
Hollywood actor Brad Pitt in this sort of grungy he's the British. Actor in that, and yeah. he's one of the smaller roles. He, he's, he not, he's not the main character. He's he, you know, like Stephen Graham has a bigger part in it than, yeah. than Brad Pitt does. So he's um, it's kind of atypical to have Brad Pitt in that film. And then also because he's doing an accent and because he's playing a character that would not be written like that now, uh, the, the film would be completely different. You just, just because of the way that's portrayed, mm. I think that's why it kind of stands out as big. That's also Brad Pitt in that, in that film. Yeah, great actor. Hi guys, I discovered the podcast recently through TikTok and I've really enjoyed going through the episodes. So big thanks for that. From around early lockdown, I started getting into watching a lot more films and tried to catch up on a lot of the most critically acclaimed award-winning films that were available to stream. I have a lot of favorites, but amongst a few that didn't quite live up to the hype for me, I found The Revenant to be a standout that really worked for me. In episodes where you've mentioned the best scene and more specifically, the best fight scenes, the one that really came to my mind was the final fight between Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hardy's characters right at the end of the film. The sheer grit and brutality of it is perfect. I love that you can tell how they are both exhausted from all you've seen previously, yet they will still give all they have in the final fight to the death with no flashing marvelness to it just two ruthless warriors sluggishly trying to stab and axe each other (laughs) mercilessly the combination of the fight choreography acting camera work direction and music is just so great in my opinion that all being said the film is fairly long and i haven't rewatched it a lot in full so i understand if it's not everyone's cup of tea i would love to hear your thoughts on the film and that scene in particular it gets talked about a lot less than the bear scene and the general cinematography thanks loving the podcast well, first of all, Emmanuel Lebetsky did the cinematography of The Revenant, one of the best cinematographers out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree with everything you said about the scrappy fight scene in The Revenant. I've only seen it once, but yeah, I like I like a scrappy fight scene where the characters are, are tied and it's it's almost like childish. You know, they're slapping mm-hmm. down. And I remember that scene at the end being so... It, it, it makes it more brutal if it's scrappier instead of it being sort of clean cut. Uh, yeah, great observation. And the, the press around the film at the time of the conditions that they were working in yes. and how challenging that was, I think that kind of informs the grittiness as well. And that film has, uh, does have some really great standout scenes. The, the best scene is, is obviously talked about, but the, the opening the is great. Amazing. That sort of one steady, just one shot, isn't one it? One shot. Um, and they only had, a, I think, like a 40-minute window at, at one part of the Get day. Get the pelts! Get the pelts! That you can, pelts! <laughs> that Sorry, you can shoot that because yeah. of the sun has to be at a certain spot in the sky yeah. that you have the dynamic range yeah. to shoot in shade and in sunlight, which is just crazy. Yeah. Anyway. Just, you must just spend the whole day rehearsing and yeah. then it's like we have three takes maybe yep. two takes the reset time no it must be one take yep. unbelievable so yeah Revenant yeah good shout and this last one quick one from Dan who's uh, Dan's written in many for times thank mm-hmm. you Dan um when talking about favorite scenes, he says, completely agree with the opening of Inglorious Bastards being mentioned as a yes. standout scene. But my other two, the final argument scene in Marriage Story. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what, what what a, sometimes I wake up and wish you were dead. What a performance. Yeah. Just like, that, that could be on stage and just be just as good. Um, also, sorry, let's yeah. talk about Marriage Story. Really sad to see that Ray Liotta dies. I know, that? I did yeah. see that. He was great at Marriage Story. He's fantastic. He's like, if <laughs> yeah, yeah. Adam Driver's like, I, I can't even close to afford this. Yeah. And he's like, listen, if you have a stupid question, you ask him. Yeah. He is $200 an hour. You don't ask me. <laughs> I am $400 an yeah. hour. Yeah. He's a perfect, like, pinstripe blazer, sharky yeah. lawyer. Yeah, re- I just immediately believed who yeah, he was. And he's, he has that sense of, uh, you know, his great films like Goodfellas, of, of really just believing he's existed for years as that character. Yeah. If you guys want to, there's a the, one of a great Ray Liotta performance uh, is is in this film called Something Wild, which is this Jonathan Demi film. Um, yeah. I don't know if a lot of people have seen it, but um, he he's it's pre Goodfellas, and he plays this kind of like uh, criminal who's sort of like catching up with his ex girlfriend, and he's so wild and got his wide yeah. eyes. And like, <laughs> 
the, 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 the main in the Ray Liotta laugh. He's a joy to watch. So, Ray Liotta um, in B-movie and Ray Liotta in Wild Hogs. <laughs> yeah. Underrated Ray Liotta performances. Check them um, out. But yeah, what a talent. He also says, Keely Hall's incredible one-shot in Hospital... Uh, it, Keely Hawes' incredible one-shot in the hospital scene in It's a Sin, where she learns right. of her son's HIV diagnosis and she's storming through the corridors, confronting nurses, doctors, and friends. Yeah. It's a sin. I mean, I feel what like we've just sort of, that, that has come and gone before we started talking about this, but what a, what a TV show. What a, just, amazing. If you haven't seen that on, on it's on Netflix now, it, you absolutely must. What a, what a show. I remember what, finishing It's a Sin and being, and thinking, wow, I am such a, I'm as a consumer of content and of, of drama set in periods of history, I'm so reliant on great storytelling to mm. tell me what a period of history was like yeah, that yeah. might not have been told properly. Yeah. And I think It's a Sin did a fantastic job of helping you understand what yeah. it would have been like to live through that. And I and think it's fantastic. There's something so preciously like British about it as well. Five episodes. Oh, just Russell T. Davis comes in, does yeah. the thing. And I really felt like I was watching like era generation defining show I'd like more more TV shows to not feel like they need to fill out X many episodes and just go no this story can be told yeah. in 5, 50 minute or 45 minute chunks yeah. and that's how I think it will work yeah. you don't need to do 24 episodes yeah, or, exactly. like, or 10 one hour brilliant um, fantastic cool